Hello everybody and welcome to the New Look Hard Truth Business Podcast with myself Mike Rothen and usually my co-host Michael Kennedy who can't make it here today. So instead we have drawn in the one and only Mr. <laughs> Philip Eidson. How are you Phil? Hey Mike, I'm really good, thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me to be part of the first episode of the New Look Pod. Well, it's the 26th effectively, is mm-hmm. it? I think you've done 25 in the community and now we've decided to keep the community going yep. and keep the podcast going. So if you'd like, we can have a quick chat about how it came about. Yeah, absolutely. So do you want to talk about the community? For We might get some new listeners as this is going to go out as a free podcast. We might have yep. some people um, listen for the first time. So if you want to discuss the community and yourself and Dara, how you saw that going. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So yeah, if folks are listening to this who haven't listened to the first 25 episodes, which were inside a private community. So the private community, the Hard Truth business community, was something that um, Dara McAnthony, who is a successful businessman, he is also uh, co-owner and chairman of Peterborough United. Uh, we put together a community, which was kind of behind closed doors, of uh, really digging into one, a lot of Dara and I's business experiences, but also trying to bring a community of folks together to help each other ultimately and to be the, the fuel, if you will, to be um, guiding, encouraging, motivating, um, whatever it may be, a lot of the community in their business endeavors. And so we, we pulled this community together. I think it was maybe February or March timeframe of uh, 2021. And when we pulled it together, we honestly didn't really know we pulled it together because, um, you know, we we want to be able to help folks in the community. And for Dara, particularly, that's one of his really big motivations is that, you know, he wants to be able to help as many folks as he possibly can. We honestly didn't know where the community would go, um, how successful or otherwise it would be. Uh, but we wanted to put something out there and really experiment. So I think we're both big believers in experimenting um, with things. And so here we are recording this end of September and we went through 25 episodes. So um, what's that? Really 25 weeks of, of having a community that was built around a podcast that had some community Zoom sessions where we all got together and kind of uh, had some live sessions. We had some business pitches, lots of different things, but we just decided that maybe in its current format, um, it's one of those things in a business that you kind of... Um, you learn that um, you either, it's like, where do you put your resources? Where do you focus your time? And I think it was in that difficult kind of no man's land where you think, okay, so it's not wildly successful in terms of the numbers that we had coming into the community for, because communities really need a lot of people to self-sustain themselves. But it wasn't a failure either because we did have a good community and there were a lot of a lot of people who were engaging in the community. So it's like in the middle of the road. Um, so which way do we go? And, and we felt that, we didn't really necessarily have the ability to dedicate the time needed to take it where we thought and where we still think that that business community could go. Um, and so we wanted to focus. Um, we have a, a football podcast as well, Hard Truth uh, Football, and we thought we'd dedicate most of our time to that instead. So, you know, we kind of pulled the plug on that that private community area. But we're so happy to see out of that is members of the community really stepping up to take on the baton and to continue some of the work that we started in bringing folks together. Yeah, well, that's kind of where I came in. Um, I was a member of the community from day one because mm-hmm. I listened to the football pod um, as a hard-suffering Derby County fan. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's nice listening to a chairman of a well-run club. Um, and then I am a really, really big fan of business. I class myself as a business nerd. I enjoy mm-hmm startup culture and everything like that so i listened to i joined the community listened to all the pods and then when you decided to concentrate on the football pod i put a message out into the community and said look guys since we've now got this vacuum um i'm actually wanting to start a business podcast would anybody mm-hmm. like to start one with me as a co-host i think um my co-host who's not with us today uh, Michael messaged me in about 15 seconds saying right. yeah I'm in um, and then me and Michael got talking and we thought well we've got this community already there we've got the hard truth business community already there yeah. what about if we spoke to yourself and Dara and just said look would you be happy if we took over the in name only 
we'll control everything, but we kind of want this to live on in a different format. Yeah. Because I'm I'm almost there, but I'm not quite as rich as Dara. I've still got a little bit to go. I got a way to go as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I've a little bit more than a bit, but um and yeah, so we're gonna do a different format. I don't think it would be right for myself and Michael to be giving out direct advice to people. Um, I have run businesses. I've failed running business. I've started mm-hmm. another one. I'm, like I say, I'm a decade veteran of watching everything that goes on in Silicon Valley over in the UK. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, what I want to do is instead of directly giving advice from us, we want to go out there and pull guests from all sorts of different organizations at different levels, startups, established business, and basically take free advice off them. Mm-hmm. We want to talk to them and use it as a mechanism to help grow our business through their knowledge and not have to pay them a penny for it. It's uh, That's our thinking. Um, so on episode one, you were already penciled in to be our first guest for episode one. But what we thought we would do instead is you would be my co-host for this episode. Yeah. Um, to ease everybody in, they've got a familiar voice. They don't have to who's this Midlands lad talking to him about <laughs> stuff. It's we've, we've got somebody who uh, everyone is familiar with. And yeah, so how we're going to structure these episodes is we're going to try to get a guest on every single week. Uh, we don't know if it is going to be weekly, fortnightly. It's going to evolve as, as we evolve through this. Mm-hmm. So um, the first section we're wanting to do is we're going to talk about about what's going on in the world of business today. Over the last seven days, over the last two weeks, what's gone on? Um, because we can, I feel like members of the community would get a real boost and uh, you can learn a lot from seeing what other companies are doing and how those companies are ran and effectively what's going on in the news at all mm-hmm. different levels. So you'll see that from my first bit of news, the, the, the level there is something that I don't think any of us will attain, but it's very interesting to just see, mm-hmm. to see how the, how these companies work. So yeah, if everything's all right, we'll get straight into the news. Let's do it. So my first bit of news is about Tim Cook. And if you guys don't know who Tim Cook is, he is the CEO of Apple. He took over after Steve Jobs stepped down. Um, Steve Jobs obviously had a, a long battle with, with cancer and Tim Cook was the operating officer over at Apple, did a phenomenal job. And then when Steve Jobs permanently stood down, Tim Cook took over. And that was 10 years ago, 10 years ago this month. Which is crazy to think about that was 10 years ago. I was looking into it. I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big Steve Jobs fan. And I've, um, if anybody wants to read a book, please read the Steve Jobs um, autobiography by, uh, biography by a guy called Walter Isaacson. Mm-hmm. It's a long read, but it's just about Steve Jobs. Not about Apple. Obviously, there's a lot about Apple in there, but it's about Steve Jobs, the man from literal birth to death. Mm-hmm. And the, he was an enigma. He was a genius. He was temperamental, emotional. Um, but what he built was insane. So for Tim Cook to come in after that... Um, what he's done is is incredible so what apple have done very kindly given him a little gift for his 10-year anniversary now that little gift is in the form of about five million apple shares which works out at 750 million us dollars that's not a bad payday yeah happy anniversary um yeah i'm i'm sure most people for 10 year get probably a 25 pounds saying thanks voucher (laughs) Um, Tim Cook gets a $750 million payout. It's astounding. And you can sit there and say, why? What does he? What has he done to deserve that? Um, I've had a look at the numbers. And again, these are eye-watering, boggling numbers that it's hard to even understand them. So since he took over, when, when he took over, Apple's revenue, so that's the money they've taken in, that, that quarter was $28.5 billion. That was the third quarter of 2011. That's just, that's a quarter of the year. That That's an insane amount of money. Mm-hmm. 
the latest quarter, Apple took $81 billion. That's insane. So That's, that's the word I was thinking. It, I mean, it is, isn't it? It's an impossible number. They're, they're valued at over $2 trillion now, which again is a number. I don't even know how many zeros is in that number. He, it wasn't very long ago we were all celebrating like the first trillion the, the first trillion dollar company in I know. Cap. it feels like that was like 12 months ago or maybe a couple of years ago it just feels like these numbers are getting more and more ridiculous and i don't know if you've heard the expression of you uh, a unicorn mm-hmm. have you heard that expression before For, yeah. a unicorn is a startup that gets valued over a, a billion dollars yeah so the reason they're called a unicorn is because they're so rare Apple is worth two trillion. Apple, so what he's done is, is insane. So the stock price itself has almost seventeen x since he took over, mm-hmm. um, and with a thirty two percent annual return. Again, uh, I know Dara talked about a few episodes ago about his investments, and he'll say he has a low risk investment that'll probably return about five to six percent a year. Mm-hmm. Apple's been returning 32% yeah, a year. Which again is incredible for a company of that size. That size, that the growth is the mm-hmm. same as a startup. Yeah. The the rate of growth. So it's it's insane. And uh, people who don't know much about Tim Cook look into him. He he again is also a genius, but the polar opposite of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was a creator. Um I know. I think Dara is a fan of Steve as well. He knows a lot about Steve. I've heard him right. mention um, a lot about him and his designers and things like that. That's not Tim. Tim is not a designer. Tim isn't. When Tim was brought in, he was brought in to basically overlook the manufacturing of Apple Macs. Mm-hmm. Um, Apple had a real problem because they didn't know how many Macs to make. And do you remember the old ones with the big colourful bums and? Yeah. So that's when he came in and what they wanted is to have as little stock as possible at any one time. They had millions of dollars worth in storage and they sold them as and when they could. Tim Cook came in and within six months, they had like 3% of what they had before in storage. Mm-hmm. He streamlined the business. He's ruthless and he's come in at the CEO and he's made it his own. He's done a phenomenal job. And yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody's worth seven hundred and fifty million for ten years' work, but he's he's not. You know, he's earned a bit more. The, the capitalist in me thinks that you know people are worth like he's created the value, um, he's created the the platform for that value. And I know that there's there's always debate in the press about you know how many more how many x times does a CEO earn versus you know the typical employer, and the numbers are obscene. But on the other hand. You know, I I can't begrudge anybody for earning as much money as they can possibly earn for the you know when you're creating that level of value. It's not like he's uh, is sucking the company dry, you know, on its way to bankruptcy and taking every last pound or every last dollar. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I think he deserves every cent of that. Hey, I I couldn't agree more. I'm a I'm a capitalist as well, a strong capitalist with uh, I would say I'm central, um, mm. left leaning, um. But I'm a strong capitalist. I think that is the best way. I think uh, the way the world moves forward is through capitalism and people making money. I mean, you look at the technology that everyone has in their pockets because of Apple and then Samsung yeah. and all these companies. Uh, it's an incredible, incredible way forward. Um, so, yeah, Tim Cook has earned himself almost a billion dollars in one payday in stock. You, so. you know, it's funny because we're going to talk a little bit about procurement later. Tim Cook yeah. is one of the very few executives in the world who have come through procurement and supply chain to be a uh, CEO because it's a rarity. Um, but, you know, that's the impact that he's obviously had there. And, you know, Steve Jobs created the platform and the products and his designers. Um, you know, funnily enough, a few years ago, I actually interviewed Steve Wozniak um, for the procurement pod. Yeah. Um, so you, Sorry, know, well, like... you can't just drop that one in there for those who don't know Steve Wozniak was the co-founder of yeah. Apple with Steve Jobs Steve Wozniak is the polar opposite Steve Jobs he yeah. is a programmer he built stuff Steve Jobs was his best friend um, as they were teenagers mm-hmm. talk, talk more about that yeah so it was funny I was at a conference in San Francisco 
um, and this is probably 2017, maybe 2016, 2017. Um, and it was just as an organization within the procurement space, which is for folks who don't know, I have a, a business and also a podcast around the world of procurement. And so, um, you know, I was one of the media partners for this um, event. And, um, you know, basically they wanted, they Steve was coming to do like the, the keynote fireside, fireside chat. And he, he notoriously doesn't like the press um, and doesn't like talking to the press. Um, but they asked him if he would be open to doing like one podcast backstage um, after the event. And he graciously accepted. So, you know, I got lined up and did a like 20, 25 minute podcast backstage with him afterwards. Um, you know, which was one of those things where one, I couldn't believe that here I am sitting across from Steve Wozniak. Um, you know, I think I was a nervous wreck when I was asking the questions, but also, you know, how do I create questions that are for, that take advantage of his knowledge and background that are going to be interesting to procurement folks, which, you know, who knows if I failed or succeeded, but um, yeah, he was. You spoke to Steve Wozniak. So, but we had a podcast, we did have a, well, we have an Atta Procurement podcast with Steve Wozniak. So my most famous guest. That's insane because he, uh, again, guys, if you if you like reading, just read the Walter Isaacson book on on Steve Jobs, and it's a lot about Steve Wozniak as well. Yeah, um, he was one of the first people to. A lot of people don't know computers in the early days. There wasn't a screen; mm-hmm. you couldn't see what you were doing. Steve Wozniak made it so you could, and that's what the Apple One was. Um, so he created the Apple One. Steve Jobs marketed the Apple One, basically. And Steve Wozniak always said, without Steve Jobs, I would still be in a garage tinkering with my toys. Right. Which is true. When everyone questions Steve Jobs, because he didn't program, didn't build it. Yeah, he'd never, he wouldn't have had a product to sell. No. I think they were just the perfect combination. Mm-hmm. They, they really, really worked well. But I'm, that's insane. You spoke to the Woz, as his name is. Yes. Um, you know, and ironically for the, on the, I thought, you know, now I've got Steve Wozniak on the podcast, this is going to be, you know, we're going to explode from here. I just yeah. like one of the lowest listened to podcasts that I had, um, <laughs> which just shows that, you know, folks in my procurement demographic weren't that interested in Steve Wozniak, which was insane to me. Yeah. But, well, um, but you know, I had, like I say, very intimidating, but um, it was kind of crazy. Yeah, he's a thoroughly. I've heard he's a thoroughly lovely bloke as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would. It makes sense if he was. Yeah, he was nice enough chap, and um, you know, was very gracious to do it because, um, you know, it was. I think he liked the podcast, um, like the the medium of audio. Yeah. Um, and because it wasn't strictly press, um, he said <laughs> yeah. he would do it. Well, he started when he was a teenager. He had a telephone Polish joke line. Right. You could phone a number and you could hear Steve Wozniak telling a Polish joke. He's of the name Wozniak. Mm-hmm. He's got Polish blood in him. Um, <laughs> so he's, he's not a normal fella. Let's <laughs> just say that. Right. So moving on from 750 million payout. And we're going to come a bit closer to home to probably the the hottest startup in Britain right now. A lot of people don't know this is a British company. Is, you know, I didn't know that was until um, I read your notes beforehand. Yeah. Um, it surprised it's, me. It's a, this is why I wanted to talk about it. I do want yeah. to concentrate on UK startup. It, OnlyFans. Now, there's going to be a few guys and girls out there who don't know what OnlyFans are. First of all, I don't believe you. Um, OnlyFans was a platform that allowed influencers shall we say to have a more intimate um, place to speak with their fans fans had to pay to be able to direct message them they could share contact very much like patreon then it got taken over by adult content shall we say um so now 98% of the the influencers on there are adult they they make adult material so Last week, OnlyFans had a bit of a rocket put up their bottom when their banking partners threatened to cut off payments. 
Um, they basically, in a, in a short statement, OnlyFans said they were changing their terms and conditions and they were not allowing adult content, but they were allowing adult imagery. So people could post a photo of them in the buff, but they couldn't record a video of them doing other stuff. Now, when well, I think they, um, they had $600 million in revenue. Um, and two, I might be getting, I might be butchering my numbers here, mm-hmm. but about two hundred million in profit. Now, for a company this young and growing as quick as they do, to be making any sort of profit is insane. So, the biggest loss leader in history would be uh, an Amazon. Didn't make money for decades, mm-hmm. but then one day they just turned the profitability switch on, and now they they print money. OnlyFans are making money now. Now, if 90, 95%, 96%, 97% of your income is through adult content and you are saying to them, nope, we're switching you off, that's going to have some repercussions. Um, there was never an explanation in it into why. The rumours were the banking partners, well, first of all, your Goldman Sachs, your, your, your big banking partners, they're quite old-fashioned, so they don't like to fund adult businesses, which only mm-hmm. fans can be classed as now. Um, but so they, so they came out and they said, we don't want to fund this. There's there's rumours. That was the reason. There was rumours. There isn't a stringent enough vetting process to become an OnlyFans model, shall we say. Mm-hmm. So people were unsure whether they were underage um, models going on there and OnlyFans didn't, weren't strict enough about how they did it, which is very difficult to do. Do they have to send up two forms of ID in and what about if the IDs are fake? Blah, blah, blah. So basically all the models that were making very good money, that they'd, they'd paid out in total, OnlyFans had paid out $5 billion since they went live to their creators. OnlyFans will take a 20% cut of that. So they, that's where they made their billion. And um, they were leaving. All their fans were leaving. All their creators were leaving. People making hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars each month. They were they were going and set up on different services elsewhere mm-hmm. because if they're going from the, no one's going to pay them for photos. Some of the the models on there, and even one of their top stars is the the rapper Tiger. Now he was on that. I don't. I don't really know much about Tiger to be honest. But he then came out and said, "Nope, if you're doing that, I'm setting up my own platform. Uh, I'm calling it My Star, and I'm only going to take ten percent of your cut. Basically, shooting it straight under OnlyFans, mm-hmm. which isn't a surprise. Not a surprise at all. If you are somebody earning that kind of money, then being told we're going to turn that money off, you've got that capital behind you." Making one of these platforms isn't difficult. You you could go online, you could use a WordPress template. I'm sure there'll be enough of WordPress template. You can make it tomorrow. Um, so, and they said that he was going to go live with that in October, which is the same time that OnlyFans terms and conditions were changing. A few days later, funnily enough, OnlyFans came out and said, no, 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 we changed our mind. We're not. We, you can carry on as you are. Not surprising, because if you think about it, the OnlyFans have had $6 billion go through their system, cash paid into them. Mm-hmm. Their banking providers are going to make, for that level, you're probably looking at about 1%, 1.2% of that. So you, quick maths, $68 million or what? I don't know. Making a lot of money. So I think when OnlyFans went to them, so your, this is your decision. You are going to lose out financially. Yeah. Can we come to a different sort of agreement? And funnily enough, when you talk about money, these banks go, yeah, you, you crack on. So, yeah, a, a, a British business that is grown exponentially over the pandemic. It's one of the few companies the pandemic was great for them. They... They're going to take a hit from this. I think their creators will leave. Mm-hmm. I think they will join other platforms. 
because they've been cheated on by their partner and their partner wants them to take them back. Some yeah. will. You know, what? what's interesting is um, how, from a content perspective, it's always dangerous to build your build a content business on somebody else's platform. So, you know, whether it's the creators on OnlyFans, whether it's somebody who builds a business that's all around LinkedIn or on Facebook or whatever it may be, it only takes a decision like this um, from the platform or a change in an algorithm or something that is just completely out of your control. And suddenly you lose your business because, you know, you're at the whim of the platform. Goes to nothing um, overnight. Right. Um, so, you know, that's like, I always encourage folks about, um, you know, at least bring, bring people to where you are as much as you can. And, you know, whether it's through emails or whatever, so that you can at least control the communication and the messaging. And so that if suddenly you're taken away from something or an algorithm changes, you still know who those people are and you kind of own, if you will, the contact details of those people as opposed to just being at the whim of the platform. And it takes five minutes because mm. you can go onto Squarespace, you can go onto Wix, throw up a website in five minutes and send your viewership over to it yeah. to get their emails. And email is such a big, uh, a little bit of advice that I've found over, over my years and I'm working in, in with, with marketing. If you send out an email, you, I don't know, I don't know what your numbers are like in, in your line of work, but on average, about 10% of the people will open that email. Mm-hmm. And out of those 10%, another 10% will click on a link in that email. So yeah. you're going to have, you send out 100 emails, you can expect one click through. For example, Twitter, if you send out a post, Twitter will show that post to about 1% of your followers. Mm-hmm. So for example, Darren might have 10,000, he's in the thousands of followers on Twitter. Yeah. He might only get 100, 150 likes on it. Mm-hmm. Because not everybody's seeing it, so yeah, you put all that work in to get your, you put all that work in to get your followers. Yeah, um, yeah. For email, I think we're something like fifteen to twenty percent open rate. And um, the last, I was actually looking in our system today um, at one of the most recent emails, and click through rate was like 15 percent. Yeah. So you know that's pretty much, and that's been for us over the last five years. It's probably gone down from like twenty three percent down to fifteen percent. Um, mostly because your email list ages over time. Yeah. And so, you know, where you've got a bunch of emails that were on your list five years ago, those people aren't even are those companies anymore or they're, um, you know, they don't care about the topic so much as they did when yeah. they signed up. And it's a direct link to your customers, to your mm-hmm. followers, an email. And instead of you going through a platform, you've got a direct link to them. So yeah, I would 100% agree. If you create any sort of content, always get their detail. Try try to get emails if they're comfortable giving you that because it gives you that direct link to them. And like you say, if you've got a big follower on Facebook and then Facebook tomorrow decide, don't like that, you're yeah. off. That's it. You've, you've lost that following. Um, I'd, I'd, I would presume... A lot of our customers would know uh, platforms like Farmville, Zynga, Poker. Those are started on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Facebook used to allow people to see their API to get access to, to us, Facebook users. Yeah. Um, one day, they just went, nope, don't want that anymore, and they closed off the API. Luckily, people like, I can't remember the, the, the name of the chap that started Zynga, um, but they already created an app mm-hmm. they already would move in over to a platform to own their customer base so 100% agree with you if you build if you piggyback on someone else's uh, platform you're gonna you're not in control of your destiny 100% yeah. you know for the for the hard truth business community when we set that up and we um, encourage folks to join up to kind of a pre an interest list before we built the community out I think we used a, a WordPress site like a WordPress template. So the template costs 50 bucks. Yep. You know, you can choose your platform. I just use the platform that I use for my procurement business, which is a more expensive one because it comes with a lot of customer support. Mm-hmm. You can go to a GoDaddy or something like that and pay, you know, 10 bucks and you're done. Um, and then we use ConvertKit um, to collect the email addresses, which is not what I use in my 
my other business, but with ConvertKit, you can set up an account for free. And yeah. you can have like your first few hundred for free. So it costs That's you know, similar to MailChimp. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it cost us I wanna say sixty bucks. So what's that? Like forty pound or something like that. Yeah. To set up the ability to collect email addresses. Insane. Then that's it. I know. It's insane. And yeah, you would have gathered 300, 400 email addresses from that. Yeah. But they are 300, 400 people that have gone through a link, filled in a form on a website. They are your top tier uh, people you want to reach. They're all obviously interested. Yeah, you know, we converted. I think we, you were right. We had something like three or 400 people sign up, and then we converted yeah. about 90 of those yeah. into subscribers. Which 25, 33% in that mark mm-hmm. is, is phenomenal for conversion yeah. rate. And that is just because your leads, your signups were people that you were really interested in. There's yeah. no point in speaking to a hundred thousand people when 99,000 of them aren't interested. You want to speak to that a thousand. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely. Um, so the next bit, I read something on BBC News uh, yesterday about the department stores in the UK in the last five years. And we've lost 83% of our department stores since mm-hmm. BHS Group closed. In in one respect, it's extremely sad because, uh, I mean, I'm 30. I grew up going into Derby Town Centre and that's where you went. You went to Debenhams, you went to Wilco's, you went to... Yeah all these kind of stuff that that's what you did to do your shopping to get your school trousers it's sad to not have them anymore but then as a capitalist it's one of those like it's their fault mm-hmm. the reason no one forced them to go out of business nobody nobody was standing at the doors of these these departments like a bhs turning people away the problem was it wasn't convenient enough. Since the the invention of the iPhone and smartphones in general, people convenience is huge. So mm-hmm. Amazon, these these web services that have come along have made it easier for, for us as consumers to buy things. I don't have to now drive my car 15 minutes into town, park up for three quid, walk around one of these departments so I was looking for what I want walk back to my car, drive home. I could do all that in five minutes. So even from a personal standpoint, it's sad. From a evolution standpoint, you just kind of want to shake them. Yeah, it's exactly the same here um, in the States as well. With all these you know, department stores that have been around 75 years, 100 years, um, all just disappearing or really struggling. You know, you talked about you don't want to go and drive into town and park up and then walk and then go through like to the fifth floor or whatever it is to then go and find that they don't have what you want. Whereas online, it's almost an infinite inventory as well. So, you know, I think about here right now, you know, we're coming over to, as we record this, we're coming over to England uh, in a few days time and we're coming to a family wedding. And so we're trying to get our kids kitted out with suits for the wedding you go to the traditional department stores where you would go to try and do that. And, you know, they don't really have the right sizes or the right colors or, um, you know, it's like three times more expensive. And so we've just been doing it all through Amazon, you know, get stuff in, try it on, send it back. If it's not, you know, repeat the process um, to get what you want and just find more convenient and cheaper. It's so, so much easier because a lot of, I used to, what I've, turned 16 i used to work for a jumbo the store don't know if you you might have still been over here jumbo republic the clothing yeah. store republic yeah I, I worked there um when i first got six turned 16 mm-hmm. and the, the the process of returning co- clothes was a faff so a lot of people if it was busy they just wanted to right i'll just take these jeans at top if i don't like it i'll come back and i'll return it yeah h&m so my wife bought, got a massive box delivered the other day. She hates lockdown, by the way, because we've got a young family. So she was on maternity leave. Yeah. Lockdown happened. I'm at home. She was like, you didn't know how much stuff I ordered before lockdown. <laughs> now I'm working from home. You I see all the, the boxes door. piling up. <laughs> yeah. And she got this massive H&M box. Tried them on. She didn't like any of it. Now she didn't have to go back to H&M. She went, just had to go to our local corner shop. Mm-hmm. she could return the stuff at our local corner shop 
And that's why companies like H&M, which obviously I didn't understand how big H&M were until I went to New York and in Manhattan, one of the biggest towers in New York is H&M Tower. I was like, I thought this was just a budget clothes, 20 quid hoodie job. Um, But companies like Debenhams, like, like BHS, they didn't, they didn't really grasp online. And that's possibly because of their user base were, were older. Mm-hmm. They weren't using the internet as much as myself or, or you. Um, but they, I don't feel like they went out there and tried to get younger customers. They thought, we've got our customer base. I've got my segment here. I don't want to compete with them. Yeah. If we compete with them, we could lose. Everyone knows what happens if you stand still. Yeah, or the arrogance of you know, we're, we're, uh, we're John Lewis and so we're yeah. untouchable or whatever. I mean, we had one in our, in our local town, um, in Skipton, which is where I'm from in North Yorkshire, just a small town that's had its, you know, high street department store for, I don't know, years and years, decades and decades and decades. And that's gone by the wayside, you know, and something yeah. that you thought was untouchable when you're growing up. Um, you know, it's funny. You said you worked at Republic when you started, like when I was 15, 16, I worked at Woolworths. Yeah. Um, so under. yep <laughs> so yeah Woolies was um um you know it was the same it was I mean it's a shame that it went under but again not a surprise um because they just don't evolve or didn't evolve and yeah. um and that's kind of what got them you know once you could start buying records and cds and all that kind of stuff cheaper somewhere else then they didn't try and compete with that well, HMV isn't with us anymore. In, yeah. in Virgin Records, Megastar. It's, it's insane. Well, I think the, the big one, the, the name that I'm going to mention now that isn't with us because they didn't evolve is two. It's Blockbuster and Toys R mm-hmm. Us. Mm-hmm. So Reed Hastings, who um, is it Reed Hastings, the Netflix chap. Yeah. Um, he wasn't the original CEO. I can't remember the name of the original CEO. And that's going to annoy me. They went to Blockbuster, and this is when Netflix just used to post DVDs. Mm-hmm. And they said to them, "We'll run your online business for you," because they needed that money coming in. Blockbuster laughed them out of the building, literally laughed them out, and said, "You're not going to be in a two years' time. We're not going to know who you are." Funnily enough, Netflix won that, yeah, because they they understood the future. Um, Toys R Us, they had a deal with Amazon. And they tried to compete with Amazon, but they, they've got these big warehouses, obviously full of toys. They they couldn't shift the toys out fast enough, so mm-hmm. they tried to sell a load of them to Amazon over Christmas, and Amazon sold them. Um, Barnes and Noble, you're going to see a recurring theme here. They Amazon went to Barnes and Noble, and Amazon just did books and said, "We will look after your online bookstore." Barnes and Noble laughed left um, them out the Jeff Bezos out the building and said, well, we're starting our bookstore, our online bookstore now. As soon as that's live, Amazon's gone. Mm-hmm. These big established companies that struggle to keep up with, with what's happening in the world now, they, they die. And that's capitalism. If everybody still wants Barnes and Nobles around, you're not going to be able to have a Kindle. Right, and I, I know I like oh I like holding a book, but if I go on holiday, I'd much rather have a Kindle, because you can sit. It's light. You've got as many books as you need. So as sad as it is, it is also part of evolution. We'd still be on horse horse and carriage if we didn't mm-hmm. if we didn't have that. Yeah, and if but anyone if anyone hasn't read the book. Uh, I'd recommend if if they want to look into this kind of phenomenon a little bit more, check out The Innovator's Dilemma by Clay yeah. Christensen, um, because that is just a good, it kind of explains the challenge that uh, these larger established organizations have. Um, and if you're starting up in business, you know, they all have these weak spots where, you know, you have the ability to um, move faster, to provide a service that they can't necessarily provide because it eats into um it like cannibalizes part of their their profitable business and you know it's very few companies are willing to take the risk to give up profitable parts of their business and not seen as a cash cow because they want to innovate 
Um, and so they just stick with the profitable line of business for too long until all of a sudden these upstarts have, you know, eaten their breakfast and, um, um, and it's hard for them to kind of come back from that. Well, um, Steve Jobs said to the, famously got sacked from Apple, um, and he, he said, if you don't cannibalize yourself, someone else is going to yeah. eat you. Mm-hmm. So the the music industry, for example, they they weren't cannibalized, they weren't going online, um, and they needed Apple and Apple Music I sound like a real Apple fanboy. I just know a lot about Apple and there's, yep. they're in the news. Um, Comes full circle from where we started. It does. There you go. It's like it was planned. Yeah. Um, Apple obviously met with all the big producers of Sony and all that, and then they brought out um, Apple Music and was one of the driving forces behind saving that. And then being able to pay 99p for a song or mm-hmm. 99 cents, 59p, yeah. then obviously Spotify came along. And Apple weren't ready for Spotify. So Apple then had to try to catch up with Apple Music. And yeah, I, I, it's, it's a real interesting fight in the world of business, in the world of top level business. It's very interesting. I'm just going to look now. And if anybody doesn't have time to read a book, definitely download Audible. Mm-hmm. Um, have you got, have you used Audible? I've got, uh, I have Audible and I have 12 credits that it keeps telling me I need to use before yeah. I read them. Uh, Audible is basically just an audio book app yeah. owned by Amazon. Um, you pay seven, eight quid a month or something. You get a credit every month yeah. and that credit can be used to buy any book. But if you don't use that credit, it just goes on to the next month. So you've not used a credit for 12 months. Yeah, it's funny. I've got like 12 months worth because I probably pick a book every two or three months that I can actually listen to because I listen to it, you know, when I'm out running. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, so I'm, I have to go and find some more so I can get some more credits and they don't start taking my credits away from me. Um, <laughs> it's great though, isn't it? It does. Mm-hmm. You don't have time to read to so just shove your AirPods in, shove your headphones in and yep. go for a run, go for a drive. Yeah. Right. So pressure's on now, Mr. Ridesome. Yeah. Because we're going to move on to the interview now. This is interesting because you're usually on my side of the table. Which you're is usually the one asking the questions. <laughs> and I actually messaged you early on in the community. Don't know if you remember saying, I want to know more about you. We knew mm-hmm. a lot about Dara and we knew little bits about you. But I mean, as sexy as procurement is, not many it's ever people... been called that before. <laughs> <laughs> not many people know a lot about procurement. So Really, I, I would like you to just explain in a real basic view, what, what is procurement? What is your yeah. day job? If a, if a company comes to Phil Eidson mm-hmm. or the procurement, what are they looking for? So if you think about, you know, within an organization, they to make their organization op- operate, to produce the products and services that they need to sell to their customers, you know, they've got essentially two main expenditures. One is their internal staff. And two is everything they buy from external companies, you know, and they can buy things from external companies that go into their product. So if you think about a car company, that's probably a good example. You know, a car company will buy the lights, the armrest, the seats, the engine, the windscreen, the you name it. They buy all those things from outside suppliers and then they'll bring it into their factory and they'll make it and they'll sell the product. Um, Also, to operate that manufacturing site, they got to pay for um, electricity, you know, they got to pay for all the light bulbs. They got to pay for health insurance for their employees. They got to pay for catering so that everyone can have their lunch. They got to pay for all these things that again come from outside suppliers to keep the business running. So procurement basically is responsible for helping the business buy all that stuff that they need to buy from the outside and buy it as effectively as they possibly can. And what effectively means is different to different companies. Um, typically means as cheap as possible cheapest, yeah. Um, or at least um, you know having the right quantity the right quality at the right time for the right price so there's a few different ways that you look at what's what's the most optimum way of buying something but that's what the procurement function does so you'll have some people in procurement who are helping buy all the bits that go into the car again as, for, as an example for an automotive yep. company and some different team within the company buying all the things that that company needs to keep the lights on and to keep the business actually being able to operate. Oh, so I look on your website 
and mm-hmm. if that's not you you offer consulting you offer yes. a, a few things yeah so my business itself like I've got a background of 20 years in the procurement function and I started in automotive so I started with Ford um yeah. in the UK Is that over in the UK yeah so actually I did if I step back a little bit, I started at Vauxhall for like my uh, my year out as my sandwich year as part of my university course. Okay. Um, although my year out of Vauxhall in Luton was basically walking around manufacturing site, eating bacon sandwiches for a year. Uh, and then, you know, every, the dream. Yeah. Every now and then being told that I've got to go and, you know, count the number of screws in a box and then, you know, fax the number of screws that were in that box to somebody somewhere else. So that was, you know, my sandwich year from uni. <laughs> Um, but you know, was having you on, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, you know, they paid me and everything was good. So <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, that's all that matters. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I started with Ford down in uh, Basildon uh, and in um, Brentwood, so down in Essex. Yeah. Um, and then moved on. So I was buying there. I was buying like the um, the motors that go in your uh, instrument cluster back before it was all digitized, you know, that would tell you what, how much uh, petrol you've got in your tank and what the temperature of your car is and the miles per hour and stuff. So the things that would drive like the pointers yes. I bought, and I bought light bulbs and I bought uh, armrests for the Jaguar um, X-Type and, you know, a bunch of other different things. And then moved on to the other side of the table, which is the buying the marketing services, buying the corporate travel and buying all the stuff that helps the business run. So I went from there and I've had a number of different jobs in that kind of line of work um, for a variety of different companies. So Ford, Pfizer is another, Chiquita, um, um, financial services company and a bunch of others in between. Um, you know, and kind of getting more and more experience to the point where I became head of department. So um and ended up actually living in India for a year, which is a whole different experience. <laughs> Nothing personal, um, just ship you off to all around the world. You know, I volunteered to, um, <laughs> as the opportunity arose, and it was one of those things where, um, you know, my it would be really good for my career, and it was a good experience and a good opportunity. So I went over there for a year as well. Um, um, and so I've been in that profession for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, fast forward kind of 15 years, I always had this entrepreneurial itch but I was always really, I felt as I was risk averse. Um, and so I always thought, you know, am I really cut out to run my own business? But I feel like if I don't try, I'll always regret it for the rest of my yeah. life. Um, and I'd also, you know, getting in the so-called corner office, realized I didn't necessarily enjoy it as much as what I thought it would be because it was like managing a bunch of kids. Yeah. Um, uh, that's what it felt like. So, um, yeah, I just decided, screw it. You know, I got to give this a go. At this point, you know, we had, um, when was this? So this will be in 2015, 16. So, you know, probably our youngest was probably two and we had one on the way and we had the mortgage living in Southern California and, you know, all these things that are going on that made it like I shouldn't do this. But again, I would always regret not trying. So that's when I made the leap and decided. I was going to say, what brings me on to the next question is yeah. what, what were those, you mentioned making the leap. Yeah, that's not a decision you make from. Oh, do you know what? I don't want to be doing nine to five. I'm a bit bored. You had a kid. You had a kid mm-hmm. on the way. You had a mortgage. I presume your wife was a big influence on you as well, and she must have been very mm-hmm. supportive. Mm-hmm. What made you literally just go, "Fuck it, let's right. just go out there and do it"? It was. Was it just a a cumulative uh, a, a number of things? Yeah, or was it? One day you just went, nope, done. Let's go out there, let's do it myself. I think it was a realization. Like I, I can remember the day I decided, which is, um, so I was living in Southern California and there's this beach called Laguna Beach close to where we live. And I'd kind of gone with a notepad to just sit at the beach and kind of think about what the future would hold. Um, and a bit different I, to Luton. Southern California. And so, you know, my, my, that's where my career had taken me. So it's like, I was really fortunate to be in this position. So then you, you think, am I just being greedy, you know, and will I never be happy? But, you know, I look back and that, so one of the things that influenced me was like the past two years we'd had family over for, um, not for Christmas, but people were visiting California and I'd had exactly the same conversation with them when we're saying, you know, how's the job going, all this stuff. And for two years in a row, I'd said, I'm really not enjoying it. And, you know, I've got all these 
it's just not what I want to do. And there's all these like uh, issues and things. And the first year I said that, you know, you kind of think it, you lament it, you move on. The second year in a row, it was like a broken record. I'm saying exactly the same things. And so it's like this realization that it's only in my power to do something about it. Um, and I obviously haven't, and I need to pull my finger out if I want to change things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so when you have that, that conversation with yourself, usually that leads to, well, I'm just going to go and find another job. The reason why I decided not to do that was because in reality, as I traced back my career, probably three or four job changes consecutively, I'd kind of had those feelings and I changed job and I was happy in the new job for six months or 12 months or 18 months or whatever. And then come 18 months, I was just in the same place again. So it's like, yeah, yeah. I was like, I was enjoying the thrill of being in a new job with a new challenge and meeting new folks and making a name for myself again and all those things. And as soon as that wore off and it got to business as usual, I was back in a place where I wasn't enjoying my job. So I think I kind of fell I'd fallen out of love with my job. And so I thought, you know, because of all that, then I, I just need to go and do something on my own. Now I set myself a couple of targets. This was probably, uh, I think this is probably like October of, um, you know, of the year. And I quit in April, the following April. So I'd kind of made this pact in October that this is probably what I'm going to do. You know, obviously I spoke to my wife about it and my wife was very encouraging and, um, you know, things that happened in her life, um, you know, gave her the philosophy of, you know, you don't know, nobody knows how long they've got on this planet. Um, and so you don't want to just always regret and think you should do something because other people think you should do it or, um, yeah. not, for, not, not pursue your dreams. Um, and so she was just very encouraging that if, if this is what we want to do, then, you know, you'll, you'll figure out a way to make it work. Um, you only, you, you never regret the things you do. You regret the things you don't do. Right. Now, I think from a listener, obviously you've done well for yourself because you've, you're at a point now, I think we've spoken previously where you are at a similar level to when you're in your upper management job working for somebody else. Mm-hmm. You are back there and you're growing. So we know how the story started. We know how it ended. Well, we're in the middle of your story, but yeah. we know where we are now. Yeah. But what I really want to get across to the listeners is starting a business is brutal. Starting oh, yeah. a business, it wasn't for you. You weren't on a beach and I'm going to presume you weren't on a beach and saw the California with your notebook. You went, I'm going to do this. And the next day you started it up. You had customers. Everything went all nicely. You were driving a nice yeah, car. I wish. <laughs> so right, exactly. what I really want, what I want you to talk about is yeah. those those early days, those really early days yeah. and the, the tough bits because there will be people listening that are that are in that stage now, that are in the stage of, I don't know if I can do this. This is really hard. Um, I feel like, is it imposter syndrome where you, you, you are, like I don't think you ever lose imposter syndrome. Like, I think that's, that's a, I mean, unless you're really co- extremely confident and, you know, um, but I, I mean, for me personally, I never lose imposter syndrome, but yeah. you know, you, you talk about getting from quitting my job to, you know, replacing the income in my job. And it's taken six years to do yeah. that. Um, and I can go, I can talk a little bit about kind of the roller coaster, but just for context, you know, that took me, we didn't really, it's not like I had a big nest egg or anything like that when I did this. So, I mean, all along the way, I've had to sell the house move away from Southern California, the house of our dreams and cash in the equity to spend in the business. I have had to cash out my retirement, uh, money to invest in myself. I thought I'm going to invest that in myself rather than invest it in the stock market because I'm more in control of what the outcomes will be. Um, you know, we've had basically spent every penny that we had getting to that point where finally now, six years later, you know, and still I would never profess to, or we finally succeeded because, you know, any year in business can just be an anomaly on the upside as much as it can be on the downside. So you want to see a bit more. The last 12, 18 months has proven. Yeah. So, um, so I want to continue. I don't think that we've made it yet, but at least we're on the upward, we've been on the upward trajectory where the investments are suddenly, um, paying off a little bit, but you know, you go through, you know, I think of my first year in business, you know, pretty much zero income. Um, you know, my second year in business, maybe 
20% of what my income was, you know, when I quit third year in business was, um, we did better that year, although, uh, mostly because I got a personal consulting gig. So, I mean, I don't think personal consulting isn't really the same as business because it's, you're, it's still your time and material, um, you know, where I got to probably 80%. And then it dropped down to my lowest year ever where I'm filing my taxes and the government is giving me money at the end of the year. Um, you know, that was the low point where, you know, I'm back at like 15% of my income for when I um, um, when I quit my job. And then, you know, the last couple of years, it's finally been on an upward trajectory where, you know, we grew an awful lot last year. Well, we grew two years ago a lot. Um, we stabilized last year, which was great, you know, because of the pandemic, I was happy to be about level. And then this year, we'll probably be like another 60 or 70% growth again. Brilliant. Um, so it's kind of, we're getting there. But it's, yeah. people talk about roller coaster. Um, and the roller coaster is, I thought, you know, that's just one of those cliches. Um, and it's been more brutal than I would have ever imagined. And you really got to be um, passionate. I don't I don't necessarily know about passionate about the market that you're in, but you got to be passionate about the end result yeah. that you're trying to achieve. Um, and there's going to be a lot more hurt than there is, um, I think, pleasure along the way, at least getting things off the ground. Um, because and I think a lot of people don't talk about that side of business because on the outside everyone wants everyone to look at you and think oh well, everything's really successful yeah um you know and it's interesting in a business like where a podcast is part of it people on the outside think well the podcast is going from strength to strength and you must be doing well well you know if you knew the reality behind the scenes of um uh, from a monetization perspective for a few years there I mean it was pretty tough yeah and that's a brings us back to when we we'll talk about Tim Cook earlier and about capitalism is you will have um, a lot of people, a lot of people that are woke that say CEOs and founders, why did they get so much money? Mm-hmm. They took the risk. Yeah. They took the, 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 the chap who builds a factory um, to build the car parts, for example. They took the risk to build that factory, the, the capital mm-hmm. risk, the financial risk. The workers don't take that risk. So I, I firmly believe that if you employ people, you should pay them well mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, they're given their time. Yeah. But if anybody believes that the founder, the CEO, the, the people at the top that have built it from nothing and have put everything on the line, they're the ones that they took the risk, they should get the reward. Because yeah. if tomorrow that, that went down to, if that went to zero, they're the ones that lose everything. Yeah. I mean, you put everything on the line. I mean, I know that there'll be folks listening and say, well, that's insane. You shouldn't do that. And I think it's, you know, maybe if you're doing your second business or your third business or whatever, as much as you can, you want to use other people's capital. But when you're setting up your first business, that's, you don't really have that option. Um, You have to really believe in what you're doing and you got to bootstrap it and, um, um, and it's all or nothing. And, you know, and it's funny because you set yourself up along the way you set up and say, well, if I get to this date or if I get to this amount of money in the bank and it's really not going the way that I think it's going to go, then it's time to pack up and, and leave. Yeah. But, and I had those, but then I ended up sailing straight through them because I, on one hand you say like, it wasn't a failure and it wasn't a uh, um, overwhelming success like we we're talking about the business community earlier so it's like where do you go do you continue going or do you just kind of throw your cards in um, I always believed that if I kept on going something would happen um, and I guess I got to the point where you got past the point of no return where you've got no choice but to make it happen Yeah, um, and we got sued along the way as well which is a whole different thing you know just to add to the stress you know when you're at the lowest point and yeah, we, we were actually talking about this the other day, weren't we? Mm-hmm. And in my business, um, I won't name names, I won't say who, but on day one, we got threatened to be sued. Yeah. On day one, I am um, going back to what you're saying earlier. I my previous business was in betting data, um, it was two halves of the business. I won't go too much into it. I think myself and Michael are going to talk about that next episode mm-hmm. about ourselves, just chat about myself for a bit. Um, and I actually managed to get investment 
for that business. And if I'm if I'm honest, um, it wasn't a huge amount of investment. It was from a very wealthy couple of very wealthy people mm-hmm. that invested in me. Um, I wish I hadn't searched for investment. I wish I'd left it six more months. I'd already been going eighteen months, yeah. bootstrapping, grinding away, and then this opportunity came up and I took it. It just didn't work out for me at that time. And then COVID hit mm-hmm. and football stopped. So it stopped. Yeah. Um, but it is it's interesting what you say about about raising capital in, in the US over on the uh, the East Coast. Uh, on the West Coast, sorry. There is eye-watering amount of money that people raise to get these things off the ground. Yeah. We don't have that opportunity in 99% of the world. You don't have that opportunity in, in Derby, in the Midlands. Then, and So when that opportunity came, well, I had to grab it. Mm-hmm. I wish I just held off, just kept growing it slowly until a point where I actually had something to to invest in. So, yeah. I'd, but it can be attractive. I mean, you know, you're thinking about how can I take the business further it's more than just the money isn't it it's yeah uh, you know it's running a business on your own is lonely um and so uh, and you never really know if you're making the right decisions or not because one what we talked about before the imposter syndrome and two you've not really done this before so you're kind of making things go up as you go along and you've got so many different sources of material that give you guidance of what you should do and when i say that it might be mentors it might be reading stuff online it might be listening to podcasts it might be like i feel like we're we try and absorb as much information as you can um um, you probably are at risk of absorbing too much information that then you end up being like a paralysis by analysis yeah um when you're on your own so taking capital is more than just the money it's bringing other people into the business to have different perspectives yeah and absolutely the um it also adds a different level of pressure. There's a, yeah. you'll know there's a lot of pressure when you start your own businesses. How am I going to pay my bills this month? Mm-hmm. The investment took away that pressure, but what it did was add the pressure. How am I going to pay this investor? Mm-hmm. How am I going to pay for his bills in six years? Yeah. How am I going to return that money? I need to need to think in a bit more long term. Um, he and I kind of just said I, I doubt he would listen to this. I'd be a busy man. He was phenomenal. Having mm-hmm. that investor, having that guidance, he was great. Um, he's probably not happy because I lost his money. Um, there, there were, like I said, two two blokes. They having someone to call who knew the business, and I sent updates to, and they had their own advice. It was he was phenomenal. So if I'm honest, that was more valuable than the money. Mm-hmm. Was having that person there. And that's a kind of what I want to do with this podcast is you give people somebody to talk to. A, yeah. a really quick story of how I actually got the investment is I listened to a podcast called This Week in Startups mm-hmm. with an investor called Jason Calicanis. Yeah. Are you? Are you? Yeah. Yeah, I listened to that. I. It's funny. I'm in their Slack community, although I never engage yeah, in too. it. Yeah, me um, But um, no, I've listened and followed to Jason for a long time. I am so I listen again. Me too. I, I think Jason is brilliant. He's a he's an investor. Anybody this week in startups, go listen to it. Um, he had a guy called Brett Hoberman on, who mm-hmm. is a UK venture capitalist. I tweeted Brett and said to him, "Hey Brett, I'm a 25 year old entrepreneur, want to be entrepreneur. I've got this product. Just want to know, would you raise money or would you do this?" He gave me his email address. Mm-hmm. Who forwarded on it to somebody who forwarded it on to somebody else who gave me a call and said, Hey, can we have a, I've got someone who might want to chat to you. And that went down and, and got me my investment. So mm-hmm. indirectly, Jason Calicanis got me my angel round. Yeah. Um, a much smaller angel round than he would sign. Not going to lie, but he did it nonetheless. And that's what I want. I want to be able to speak to people like, like yourself who are on the business side of things. You are bootstrapped. I've, I presume you're bootstrapped yeah. or minimal investment if it's anything personal. Um, and then I also want to speak to founders of people who have raised their angel round, their seed round, series mm-hmm. A, series B, which for people who don't know are the generic phases you take investment. 
you'll have a friends and family round where you'll tap up your gran. Then you'll have an angel investor who's a wealthy individual like Dara. Mm-hmm. And then you'll go to the institutional investors, your venture capitalist firms, and more and more and more money. Facebook, Google, all your big tech firms out there, that's how they, they raise. Um, I want to speak to these guys. I want to speak to angel investors. I want to speak to um, VC firms. Mm-hmm. Because you never know, somebody listening, somebody in the community, I know it's Maka, isn't it, who's yeah. quite big in the community. Maka's looking for investment. Yeah. It might open Maka's eyes and go, well, well, this is the person I need to talk to. If it, just as an example, um, I could, he, he could put him in touch. He could tweet an angel investor as I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could get him that investment he wanted. It could work. It could not. So that is the whole point of this podcast, which is a bit different to yours and Dara's hard truth business, which is you've got Dara here. We've got the yeah. asset. Let's use him. Me, I kind of want to scatterfy. I want to get free advice from everyone. You know, p- people are more, if I can say anything from my procurement podcast, and in my procurement podcast, we're now 420 episodes in. Um, <laughs> you know, we've been doing it for six years now. Wow. Um, you know, people are more accessible than you may think they are. You know, you told, told the story there that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have dreamed that you would be able to be that access, like, get that get the access through a tweet or through a an email or whatever it is but um you know don't don't think that you can't do it because if if you if you give a compelling enough story and it's the right place at the right time then um you know people will respond you know i talked about before about interviewing steve wozniak you know who'd have ever thought he would be accessible enough to speak to you know a procurement podcast with at that time you know my dog and a few other people listening but <laughs> he was willing to do so because you know you ask um and if you don't ask then you know you don't get uh, fortune favors the brave yeah. as they say no well that is it for episode one of the new look hard truth business podcast if you want to get in touch, our email is hardtruthbusiness at gmail.com or tweet us at hard underscore truth. And we'll happily, if you've got any questions or if you want us to look at anything, please get in contact and we'll happily, hopefully do that. Um, like I say, my name is Mike. Um, we've got Phil. Thank you very much. No, it's been a pleasure. I was very happy to be a part of episode one of the uh, Reimagined podcast. I'll definitely be uh, keeping an eye on things and uh, seeing how they go. And of course, um, always happy to come back. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. Thank you.